0: Well, uh, end of term three, cannot believe that we're here already, unreal. Uh, So we're finishing off uh, a term where we've explored the uh, book of Philippians and uh, the last Sunday we uh, began a mini-series which we're finishing today on politics and the kingdom of God. And uh, as I said last week, we're just going to do this every election cycle, Um, just, uh, just to keep sure, just to keep kind of tabs, just to take a bit of an inventory about where we're at in terms of a healthy engagement with politics as a follower of Jesus. All good? Um, So we're going to explore this. And and partly, uh, I just came to this place of conviction, basically, of just like, we actually, as a pastor, I have a duty to do this. Uh, Because there's two like extremes that are in the world today that we swim in. One of the extremes is like, and this is, I mean, for followers of Jesus, for Christians, for people that have said Jesus is Lord, who, who believe in him, who believe he rose again. So there's these two extremes. So you've got one extreme where uh, there's a sense of like unbelievable passion for the political process, like fervent passion and my observation is that over the last 15 years or so, maybe it was there before, I'm not sure, but certainly for me over the last 15 years or so, what's fascinating to me is that for Christians, for a segment of Christians around the world, and certainly within wider society, people are investing into politics what was normally invested into their religion. So what I mean by that is that people are finding ultimate meaning, they're finding community, Um, Where's the next slide, Ramon? Here's my list. Ultimate meaning, community. Interesting, like an identifying set of symbols that marks us as part of that tribe. Common enemy. So if you're in this tribe, then, uh, then, you know, rather than the enemy being the world, the flesh, the devil, which are the three enemies of Scripture, the enemy is the person that doesn't agree with your political uh, ideology. Uh, And even eschatology, this is how we think the whole world's going to play out. So we've got to get really passionate about trying to make sure that we kind of steer the ship the right way. So you've got this whole, now this is, just so everyone's very clear, I'm not critiquing the right. I'm critiquing everything. Everything. This is right across the political spectrum, so don't for a second think that some tree haggy hippies up here trying to get on his left-leaning wagon, even though the photos are a little easier to find in terms of rallies now that look like Christian meetings. So that's, the, that's one extreme. And what's interesting is that, so I've got a number of, uh, of friends in the States where, where, this, where there's obviously a lot of this hoo-ha going on, and... Uh, and one of my friends is a lovely pastor called Rich Nathan. Now, you cannot get a more middle, down the road, wise, biblically informed pastor than Rich Nathan. This guy is just, just so down the line, it's unbelievable. But obviously, he's having to pastor a church in the States. And he's like, man, it's for some people in our church community, uh, you've got... Uh, such a level of passion and he would say deception that you have to learn to speak to someone like that in a cult to help them navigate through it. So that's the extremes, right? So you've got this whole, but then you've got this other, and that's again left and the right. Get super passionate about this thing and again, Christians get sucked into it. Then you've got this other side and a whole bunch of people in the room in this camp where it's like totally disillusioned, totally disengaged, just totally over it uh, and, uh, and, and basically disinterested and apolitical. Just couldn't care. And you may not even vote. You're just so bored with the whole thing. And again, well, this invites, I think, um, this effectively for me is like, man, this is going to be careful. You can slide into nihilism there where it's like, it's all just meaningless. It doesn't matter, whatever. It's just, you know, well, my life doesn't really matter. It doesn't count. Or now, here's the thing. The antidote to both of those extremes is a vision for the kingdom of God. The antidote to both of those extremes is a burning vision of the kingdom of God. So I'm sure people are like, why the heck's Harvey doing a blinking two weeks on politics and the kingdom of God? I don't give a crap about politics or I, I'm really passionate about politics. I hope he doesn't annoy me, whatever extreme you're in. But the rest, so here's the thing. Um, is like, well, Everything Jesus, here, here, you've got to get your head around this. If politics is the good faith attempt at human flourishing, like what's the common good, right? So if, if politics is trying to find what's the common good, then everything Jesus said is political. Because he came to bring life in all of its fullness for everyone. And how does that happen? Under the rule and reign of God in his kingdom. So you cannot detach yourself from politics in the sense if it's about the common good. And we should all be passionate about that. So, uh, but I want to say a couple of notes first up as we, before we dive into this whole thing a bit more. We have this very diverse congregation, which I adore, okay? It's healthy and biblical and I love it, even though having a very diverse conversation, uh, congregation is not easy at times. It requires an extra portion of grace and it helps us grow as people of love, Right? So like, that's all right. When you've got people that, have got hard, that are hard of hearing with, with their phones activated to voice, no dramas. Oh, there's a call from the States of all places. Very interesting. It's the Lord trying to get through. Um, so I was saying that this is a diverse congreg- congregation, which means that I reckon my guess is that pretty much every political party will probably get a vote in this church. I reckon. That's my take, which I think is really healthy. However, having a diverse congregation sometimes makes it a bit tricky to love because it's hard to love people that aren't like you. And in fact, Jesus doesn't call us not just to, I mean, he like raises the level, not just to people who are not like you. He calls us to love our enemies. So if you're super passionate about politics in the room, there are people who are your enemies and you've got to love them and they're in your congregation. (laughs) That's why COVID was fun. I know that even saying that C word is so triggering for like 98% of us, but it's the reality. Our love got tested. So what does it look like to be a community of love in a very diverse congregation? The reality is that at the best of times, politics can be contentious and divisive, and we do not live in the best of times. So it's a challenge when we talk about this stuff. Um, And so even as we talk about politics in the kingdom of God, it's understandable that there's a degree of anxiety that can rise, but we may want to avoid politics altogether and we can try, but we cannot avoid the consequences. We live in a political world. So, as I said, politics is that good faith attempt to achieve the common good. Um, And therefore, everything Jesus said in effect from that definition was political. Jesus had a political vision. Luke 4 verse 43, Jesus says this, But I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also because that is why I was sent. You've got to get your heads around that statement. We've said the word kingdom of God so many times. It's lost its punch. It's like kingdom with a king and and like a whole culture that comes with that kingdom and and things you can do and things you can't do and and a ruler who rules on the throne of that kingdom. He has come to establish a kingdom, a government, a government in this world now. Now, as Joseph said, Jesus comes and he inaugurates this kingdom. He's on the cross of Calvary because His kingdom isn't about about forcing anything on anyone but self-giving love that would captivate your heart and draw you into His loving, self-giving kingdom of love. And so it's just the most extraordinary thing. This is why Advent, so amazing. God in the flesh has come to dwell among us. This is why Easter is so incredible and the build-up to it in length. He's gonna be coronated as king, but it's on the cross, absorbing the sin of the world and forgiving us. I mean, just extraordinary. And then defeating the power of death by rising again. Hallelujah. He's the king. He's the king. So the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God over your life and over this world. So so as Joseph was saying, we live in this tension at the moment of the already not yet kingdom. The kingdom has come and the kingdom is yet to come when he returns in glory and brings the work to completion. Hallelujah. We are called to be kingdom people now, learning to live in God's kingdom under his rule and reign now. Uh, and so what does that look like? like? What is the rule and reign? Like if God was in charge, what would it look like in your life? And then you just got to work concentric circles out. What would it look like for Terada? I Nui, Hospital Hill, Flaxmere, and even Havelock North. <laughs> you know, it's like, what would, what would God's rule and reign, what would it look like if God's in charge? And then... We're called to be the kingdom people that see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So as Jesus begins his ministry in Luke chapter four, he declares that, but it's interesting that he declares the kingdom. I've got to preach the kingdom of God. And Luke gives us a bunch of teasers. But up to the point, up to a certain point in Luke's gospel, we don't know what that is yet. We just see hints. He's like, I'm preaching the kingdom of God. We're like, what is that? And we see him healing sick and doing and forgiving people. And it's interesting that at the beginning and end of Luke's gospel. Jesus declares at his time of temptation, and when he stands before Pilate, that his kingdom is at odds with the kingdoms of this world, uh, and that uh, it's a kingdom of heaven. So it's come from outside of earth. So there's a whole bunch of teasers, but then uh, Jesus declares and proclaims this kingdom at a time where there already was some kingdoms around. Kingdom of Herod, under the kingdom of Caesar. So it was kind of a political move. There's a new government in town, Jesus says. But this government does not have authority through force and power, but through love and humble service. So then Jesus preaches in uh, Matthew 5 to uh, to 7 and uh, in in Luke uh, chapter 6. He he basically gives his political manifesto, which we call uh, the Sermon on the Mount uh, or uh, the Sermon on the Plain. Luke kind of summarizes the Sermon on the Mount. And your homework last week, I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands because I'm finishing a term pretty tight and I don't wanna to be too discouraged, but the homework last week was to read the Sermon on the Mount because this is something we wanna get in our bones if this is our primary, primary calling and passion as follows of Jesus. So he, he, he gives this manifesto and uh, in Luke's gospel, he gives a more succinct version. And then let's distill all of the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain, let's just, for the sake of us dummies, get it down just to 40 words, okay? Because a lot of stuff in there, but let's get 40 words. Here's the, gospel, here's the Sermon on the Mount and 40 words, the Sermon on the Plain. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, turn the other cheek, do unto others as you would have them do to you, love your enemies. That's in there twice, that's expensive when you've only got 40 words, but that's how emphasized it is in both the Sermon on the Plain and the Sermon on the Mount. Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. 40 words that come from Jesus and are the essence of the politics of heaven. Here's the kingdom vision. Here's the manifesto. Uh, this, this comes from heaven. This doesn't come from Plato, Aristotle, whatever politi- libertarian thing, conservative thing, whatever, you've, you, whatever influence, this, that stuff comes from earth. The, the, the mind of man, this could only come from the mind of God. This is it. So when you say Jesus is Lord and you say I'm following him, you yield your life to his lordship and this is what you're meant to get into your bones. This is what you're meant to get into your imagination. This is the, 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 the thing that's meant to frame your life, uh, to, to live this out under Lord's, under the lordship of God, to learn to live as a citizen of God's kingdom. Now, sadly... Today, in the church, we can be more conversant about political hot potatoes, particularly if we're passionate about politics, because of our engagement with the news cycle and algorithms and all that sort of stuff, than we are with the Sermon on the Mount. That's the tragic reality. But this is the heart of what God came to teach and to declare the kingdom of God. Now, what does that mean for how you vote this coming election? Well, the Sermon on the Mount doesn't give detail about what the speed limit should be. It doesn't uh, tell you what's going to be best in terms of health care or education, the care of the poor, the environment, the immigrant, all these issues that probably should be priorities for Christians. It doesn't, doesn't give us that sort of stuff. It may inform things, but it doesn't give us the particulars. There's a whole lot we need to work out in terms of literally who we're going to vote for. So that means, and Joseph said this week, last week, I was going to underline it. Listen, you are free. To embrace whatever politics seem best to you in terms of your passion and whatnot. But here's the thing the politics of Jesus must hold precedent over your politics of earth. That's the only but. So you invite wherever you want. Obviously, you're going to wrestle with that as a follower of Jesus. I hope you, you know, again, for those apolitical, you should, you know, do a little bit of work before you vote. People fought in wars and whatnot, so we'd be free to do it. It'd be good to honour them, blah, blah, blah. So I think, you know, obviously I encourage everyone to vote. Don't be, don't be apolitical. Um, but just make sure that it's not this thing that holds precedent over your politics of earth. And I would just also put a little asterisk here that said, be very cautious about any Christian leader that either subtly or overtly promotes a political party. Uh, be a little careful about that. I just don't think that's wise. I don't think Christian leaders should be doing that, full stop. So get this in your imagination, right? But there would be, okay, we've got the politics of earth, but actually the burning passion is the kingdom of God. Jesus commands his disciples to stop stressing about all the stuff that you're stressing about, including the politics of earth and how to change our country, and to seek first the kingdom of God. If you don't have an understanding of the kingdom of God, that God himself has come in Jesus to initiate this new humanity, so if you don't believe this in your bones, then the only way you can shape a nation is through political process. And then you have a functional atheism. You pretend we have faith, but we bow down to the idol of political power because we've lost sight of the kingdom of God. And that is why I'm gonna preach these sermons every election cycle. Is that, is the, like, I want, I long for a burning vision for God's kingdom in your heart and soul, but we're gonna go deeper than that. This is challenging though, because as Joseph said last week, you can't vote the kingdom of God and you can only live it. You can't vote that you can only live it. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Turn the other cheek. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Love your enemies. Be merciful as your father is merciful. This is the way that leads to human flourishing or the common good, but it has to be embodied first in the follower of Jesus before they try and make anyone else try and live this. So this influences how we interact with wider society. Again, Jesus is very clear about this. Luke chapter 6 But love your enemies, again, as in the Sermon on Plain, do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you'll be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. There's a sense where Jesus is saying like the influence of the church, like the way that we can be salt and light is directly uh, directly, uh, related to our displays of mercy. Like it's our displays of mercy that give us our distinctive... Now listen, is the public face of Christianity in New Zealand or in the Western world that Christians are merciful people? That if you go to a church and meet Christians and as you engage with them in the public sphere or online, they are merciful people. Conviction conviction, burgers getting dished out now. Matthew 5 verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Is the public face of Christianity in New Zealand that Christians are all about making peace, breaking down dividing walls, bringing people together, trying to figure out how we can get along, how we can build a more inclusive society, a more welcoming society. Here's, here's my Zinger line, I reckon the biggest threat to Christianity in New Zealand comes from inside the church, from Christians who don't look or sound remotely close to Jesus' description of what his followers ought to be, like we see in the Sermon of the Mount and the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, kindness, gentleness, and all the rest of it. This is the great, church. so the, the vision, the vision for the church is that we become more the church. That we'll create an alternative community of justice and equality and multi-ethnic love and compassion. And that would offer the world a new way to be human, a new community. That that we would affect the world. But how would we do that? We would do that through prayer. We would do that through embodying Jesus' example, not in some other control-based way. It's interesting, John Mark Comer says this, that that in the Bible, we don't see the Old Testament vision of justice, which is super, super strong and clear. We don't see the Old Testament vision of justice put onto the state in the early church, but onto the church. So we don't have to invest our energies to get the state to act more Christian. We We have enough work on our plate just to get the church to act more Christian. And listen to this. He says, The teachings of Jesus and the book of Acts, he says, so little is said about the gross injustice of the Roman Empire. Have you thought about that? Like, (laughs) we think our politics got a little crazy over the last couple of years. Try the Roman Empire, baby. You don't even get to vote, you just got to deal with it. They say, Jump, you say, How high? And if you don't jump, well, enjoy crucifixion, mate. It's going to be fun. So little said about the gross injustice of the Roman Empire. Listen, it's a glaring and intentional omission, and the silence is designed to say something. Much of the talk about justice and equality is within the church. It's all within the walls of the church, and a lot of the Bible is calling out the church to live this out. This is the thing. This is why I get passionate about this politics and the kingdom stuff, because I'm like... This this is this moment where we get to recover our identity and get a burning passion in our bones that we would be like salt in this, like flavoring this wider society. That we would be like a city on a hill, shining bright, not telling everyone how they should live, but living it in such a beautiful, attractive way that it's shining light to the darkness. Like we're called to embody it. We're called to live under the rule and reign of Jesus now so that we can live under the rule and reign of Jesus forever. Hallelujah. We're going to learn what that looks like, and this is why when the early church are working out how, how, like, what do we call ourselves? And they're called followers of the way for a little while, which I love. You can imagine why, because there's a way (laughs) that we've lost discipleship, so we're trying to reclaim that here in Bayview. So what is the? the, So oh, you're a follower of the way. How do they tell that? Because your life looks so different in terms of your rhythms, your priorities, how much margin you've got in your life, blah, blah, blah. Sabbath rest, life of prayer, slow down spirituality, hallelujah. The way of Jesus follows the way. Then they're like, they're wrestling with all Jesus' teaching and they're like, you know what? I reckon we should just call ourselves the Ecclesia, Greek word. So what was was in their imaginations when they thought about that? Well, the Ecclesia, the Ecclesia was actually a meeting that they'd have in towns So citizens of that town would get together to have an ecclesia, which is a meeting to talk about the town's business. Get your heads around this. We're the kingdom people. So we've got to get together, have a little meeting about how can we see God's kingdom come? Because we are not citizens, first and foremost, of Aotearoa, New Zealand. We are first and foremost citizens of God's kingdom. So we get together as the ecclesia and work out how can we see God's kingdom come. It's a very distinct kingdom uh, that's not enmeshed in political power. Mark 10, Jesus says this, Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, one of the very few times Jesus talks about political leadership, you know those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Listen, church, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great must become a servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man, even God did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, they lead from the top down. That's how politics work. You elect people, they lead, they legislate. That's a way of coercive power. But it never impacts the heart. Jesus says, not so with you. You lead from the bottom up through serving. The goal is to still see people change. The goal is still the common good. The goal is still human flourishing, but that comes through a posture of sacrificial love and service. Paul, uh, Rich Nathan says this, Paul's missionary strategy was neither culture wars nor assimilation, like just becoming like the culture, but rather immersion in our particular cultures while living radically different and more attractive lives. So this is, uh, this is the invitation. Now, let me give you one example that we've explored in the past here, but I want to give you a, a sort of very pragmatic example about how, I can, uh, how this can look. And I want to talk about abortion. Now, uh, if you've had a, an abortion and there's a high chance that someone in the room has or multiple people, I just want to ask you to steal your heart and I just want to speak grace and peace over you. You are loved by God in ways your brain cannot fathom and he will continue to bring healing to your heart. May he just be with you right now in Jesus' name. So the Christian ethic in terms of life is that life is precious from the womb to the tomb, right? So we're called to be consistently uh, pro-life, whether that's uh, abortion, whether that's, uh, whether that's war. We're, we're, we should be anti, violently anti-war, even if you believe that just war is okay. The, the parameters theologically for that are only after every single means has been utterly exhausted Is that the case today? No, not often, right? So whatever, right through care for the elderly, womb to the tomb. So what's happened, and I've got a whole sermon on this, which I'm going to link in the podcast description if you want to relook at it on abortion and the kingdom of God. But what's happened, I think, is that because the church has lost sight of a vision for the kingdom, that what primarily has happened is that there's been a legislative vision Rather than a kingdom expressed vision for the abortion issues. So, we've had literally 30,000 people in New Zealand march on Parliament with a legislative vision. Now, I'm all it's fine, like, of course, I'm not saying you can't have that. I'll be like, yeah, but do laws change human hearts? No, they never will change a human heart. And did the early church have that option? Man, everyone's very quiet. These aren't dumb. These aren't hard questions. These are low-hanging fruit here. Answers no for the first three hundred years, church had no political power whatsoever. So they had to embody it. What a gift! What an incredible gift! And so, uh, so what happens when you move the legislative option off the table? How do we genuinely and seriously say that we're pro-life when it comes to the unborn? I'm, um, you know. Good, good, good question for the ecclesia. How do we? How do we? Well, how about this is? And this is why we've started a whole ministry on this, which we launched a number of years ago, out of that sermon. What if, rather than just having a legislative vision, we had a vision to see God's love permeate some of the most broken places of our society? And what if, instead of 30,000 Christians marching on Parliament, we had 30,000 Christians marching into the lives of broken and hurting and stressed out young people uh, who who have got an unintended or crisis pregnancy or some broken woman, who most women would desperately want to keep the baby, and we say to those women, we're going to put aunties around you, we're going to give you free baby supplies for a year, we're going to help you with your budget, we're going to love you so much, you've never experienced this in your life, and we're going to help you, we're going to have aunties around you, and all that sort of stuff. That's exactly what our Raising Hope ministry does. Can you imagine if the church got a kingdom vision first and foremost? But you know why? It's just so easy to have a legislative vision, because it doesn't demand that you love your neighbour. That they requires nothing of you. It's so easy to march down a street holding a placard. It's so much more challenging to be consistent in your love with someone that's difficult to love because they're broken. What does Jesus call us to? He calls us to love our neighbor. He calls us not to be religious people that walk past broken people on the side of the road, but to pick them up and to care for them and to tend to their wounds. And here's the thing. You know what Jesus called people? who had expectations on how that people were meant to live, but did nothing to help them live it? Pharisees. So if we have just, a lead, like, honestly, I, don't, I care less and less about what, your, what you, you think the country should be doing, and I care more and more about your embodied response to said issue. Yeah, I Honestly, I'm just so tired of it, it breaks my heart. Yeah. What's happened to the church that we've got only a legislative vision on kingdom issues? This is That's political ideolatry and we need to repent. And we need to be the ecclesia again who are the kingdom people who, who march into broken places in, in the posture of cruciform love and we pour our lives out for others. And that's why I'm gonna preach these message, messages every single election cycle. Yes, we're gonna do our research. Yes, we're gonna vote. But honestly, my hope is not in some political system or, or party. My hope is in the king of kings and the Lord of Lords, and on his government shall be His shoulder. And, I, and my passions for the kingdom of God. And so here's the dream, is that uh, what I think God wants to do as we, as we have this little corridor this morning, is I just like his burning desires that, that His kingdom would come. Like, that's what Jesus wants for the world. And then one day he'll return in glory, hallelujah. But we're called to embody that future reality in the present now. That's 101 Christian theology. We're called to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, let it be. And so my prayer this morning, because I'll just finish with this and I'm way, off, I'm way off notes here, which is super risky on a politics talk, but whatever. But here's my thing. I reckon the things that, that if, you, if, you're, if you're particularly passionate about the political stuff, I reckon it's because there's a calling underneath that, that's a kingdom calling that needs to be expressed in some way. And my dream is that there'll be a a fresh sense of passion for God's kingdom and a fresh ownership about what that could look like. So if you're passionate about something, most of the time, that's a a calling from God. But what does it look like to embody the response rather than just have a legislative or political vision for that? Nothing wrong with it. It's got to be in its right place, right? And, uh, and if you're apolitical and disinterested and disillusioned, then again, just engage. But, but don't be a functional agnostic in how you live your life. Get the kingdom of God in your imagination and in your bones and in your heart and work out how you can spend your life well. Life is so short. Like we know that. I'm freaking out, to be honest. I'm having a mini midlife crisis. I'm like, you know, and I'm like, it's so short. I want to spend my life well. The best way I can do that is to follow the way of Jesus, because that's where the common good, where the human flourishing—that's how where I find it. It's the only place. And uh, and I want to live my life poured out for the things of the kingdom. So I appeal to you this morning: engage with the political process. Don't be apathetic, but put your hope in the kingdom of God—not some theoretical hope—but continue what it looks like to be to wrestle with what it looks like to be a kingdom people, to embody the the kingdom in your life more and more. Amen. What I thought we'd do, let's stand together and love us to, uh, to say the Lord's Prayer together uh, as a way, in a sense, of the citizens of the kingdom coming together uh, to declare uh, together and to pray uh, this, this, this great prayer. Before I do that, I want to read over us uh, this wonderful uh, passage in 1 Peter because this, uh, this captures what I've been trying to say. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10 says, Once you were not a people but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, even if they were citizens, foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Lord, we be those people, that people see our good deeds and praise our Father who is in heaven. That must be a community of God. Let's say together the Lord's Prayer uh, as as an act of allegiance this morning to Jesus, to King Jesus. Let's say this together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. And give us today our daily bread.